Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So here we are now in week two of our Romans series, and I'm so pumped about this. So real quick, if you were not here last week and you did not get a Romans journal and you would love to have one of those to walk through this over the next 12 weeks with us or the next 11 weeks now with us, our hosts are available. If you'll just simply raise your hand, we want to place one of these journals in your hands. They are a free gift to you because we believe heavily in your uh, uh, walk with the Lord and we want to see you have the tools you need to help you studying the word of God and being able to walk through the Word of God. In these journals, there is a description and an understanding of what SOAP Bible study is. And you're going, I've never heard of SOAP Bible study. It's real simple. Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And now in there, we have uh, uh, the different weeks, and we have the scriptures kind of broken down as far as where we'll be walking through on Sunday mornings. Uh, This is week two. So when you open to week two, you'll see it says Sunday morning notes, and it'll give you the passage that we're walking through, which today is chapter two through chapter three, verse 20. So it's a substantial amount of scripture we're going to go through today. So in that, my challenge would, would be this, that every morning, take time to read some of that or all of that for the next week on, on a daily basis and begin to create the habit of reading the word of God and being in the word of God. So much happens when we allow the word to be foundational in our life, when we allow the word to be uh, the the main uh, support in which we build on. And we said this last week, and I'll make this statement again. Scripture is the final word. Scripture is the authoritative word. It is not something we run to for a second opinion or suggestions on matters within life and within things. It is, in fact, the supreme authority, and we have to view scripture as such. No second Secondary works, no writings about scripture, uh, no write, other writings, even possibly from uh, authors within the scriptures, are equal to or carry the same weight as the Word of God. The Word of God is, in fact, final. So anything contrary to the Word of God, we would deem as wrong. Uh, and the Word of God is truth and it is right. So we believe heavily in scripture at this church. And so if that was a question you were wondering, how do we feel about scripture? Well, we think it is the bees knees. I don't know what else to tell you. Like, we think it is the best, it is it, uh, and then there is nothing greater or equal to. Fair? So that is how we view Scripture. That's how we read Scripture. So with that, uh, I challenge you and encourage you, uh, continue in Romans with us. So tomorrow morning when you, when, you, when you have time for your devotions, listen, I've heard this also. Just, just to clarify, I'm not asking you or saying that you need to start with an hour in your morning where you're going, I don't know if I can do this. No, just take a little time. Take 10 minutes. Even if you go, okay, I can get through four or five Scriptures. And then, then think about this. So observe what happened. And then what's the application? How does this apply to me today? How does this work today? Because the word of God is alive. And then spend a s- small time in prayer and even write the prayer. And so that's written for you. It's broken down for you. Uh, and so we'll be doing that over the next few weeks. Uh, our encouragement is for you to follow along with us as we go through. So quick recap. Uh, last week in Romans chapter 1, uh, we basically learned this, that Paul absolutely loves people. And that out of his love for people, he felt obligated to share the word of God. And now that word obligation that he used, the word obligated to use was actually meant like a sense of a debt to humanity. So it's like this heaviness of more than just a, oh, it's like I have to because it's my job kind of obligation. But Paul's sense of obligation was like, it, it is burning within me. I have to tell the people the gospel. They have to hear the word of God, right? And so, so this is where Paul's at. So then we move forward and then we see that Paul begins to walk through uh, and, and explain to the, to the people in Rome in, in this writing that basically humanity is wretched. And it starts walking through and just telling us how bad and sinful humanity is. Is And then we ended with this statement last week that no matter how sinful it is, grace is sufficient. That's not found in Romans 1, but it's found later in Romans, and we'll get to that. But grace is sufficient in that his his grace is enough, and it's it's a wonderful thing. And so this week, before we go any further, we do, in fact, need to give a little bit of some history uh, to the understanding of, of where we're at and what's going on. And uh, so as we ended last week, and in the last verse last week, it says this. It says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so, so here we have the people in this time period simply, or essentially rejecting the Lord. They're rejecting uh, what God had done. They're rejecting um, essentially what God is, is standing for. And they're saying, we know what you're saying. We, we see it. We're aware of it. Yet we're going to choose otherwise, right? And so this is where they are. And then the people are like applauding them and praising them. So it's very, very uh, similar to the America we live in today, where people are like, yeah. at one point he even says, they're even inventing new ways to do evil. And I go, that's, wow, that's hard to do. Um, but nonetheless, they were making it happen, right? And so this is where we are. So then here we are, historically speaking, what's going on? So uh, first of all, you have to know the author a little bit. So Paul, who was a devout Jew prior to conversion, right? He was not just a Jew, but he was a Pharisee, the very people that you see Jesus kind of uh, talking against quite often because of their religious understanding and their religious lifestyle in the sense of it was all about, look at me and how great I am. It was never a about the heart being submitted and, and bowed before the Lord in humility, right? It was always about, I keep the law, I keep the commands, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And so this is Paul. And, and so then when we see Paul, this author now coming in and he's about to, we're going to go through the law and he's about to just basically have all of this just kind of just crumble it before them. And so, so we see that we have Paul, this person who was the persecutor of Christians. And so then, but we have to look at his, his recipients and, and the audience in which he's writing to as well. And so if you I'm move quickly through this so we can get to the text, but if you look at history, uh, because the Bible did actually happen, the things that we read about happened. So historical events coincide with this. The Roman church had been in existence for some time that we can read that in Acts, that it had been established for a while. And we know that it was there and that it wasn't just uh, something that just happened where Paul's like, hey, is this a new church? Let me write to them. No, no, no. They'd been there for a while, fairly established, and, and, and the, re- the reports of the church are, are, are being spread far and wide. People are like, this is a great church. Now, around 41 AD-ish, somewhere in that ballpark, all right? Can we just go, listen, we don't have exact timeline on this, but the Roman emperor Claudius said that all of the Jews had to leave. Can't be in Rome you got to get out of here. And that would be the, the Christian Jews and the non-Christian Jews, and just the, the traditional Jewish people, they all had to go. Well, then uh, time passes. So that church then remains intact, and it is then being ran and led by Gentile Christians. And it's important to understand the distinction because it's going to play a part in what happens moving forward in the book of Romans. And so, so you, have, you have the Jewish Christians have been removed now from Rome, and then you have the Gentile Christians running the church Fast forward to roughly 53 AD. Now we have a new emperor. His name is Nero. If you know anything about Nero, that was a really bad, messed up dude. And so Nero says, you know what? They can all come back. So he brings all the Jews back. And they're like, listen, you're allowed to come back. So the Jewish Christians come back and find the Roman church in a different way than what they had left it. Because a lot of the traditional Judaism that was a part of the way they lived as Christians and still practicing uh, Jewish law and practicing uh, Jewish you know, customs and things like that, a lot of that was now removed and gone from the church. And so they come in and now as lesser citizens within this new Roman structure, they are in this power struggle of, no, we established the church because we first had, the Messiah came from us. And so there is this struggle and them wanting to then impart again, like this is the law, this is Roman, this is Jewish tradition, this is this, and so he's walking through this. So there is this kind of division that we're going to start treading through in the book of Romans. And so it needs to be understood as we walk through this because Paul's going to talk to, he's kind of talked to the Gentile audience in the first, just saying like humanity was, was just completely depraved. And, and so this is how awful and wretched it is. And so then they go through all of this. And this brings us to our very first point of today uh, as we jump into this um, in Romans 1, so that he walks through and says, this is everything that's wrong, everything that's bad. And so then we find in verse 1 of chapter 2, and he says this, and we'll pick up right here. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same thing, do you think you will escape God's 
judgment. So here we've gone from speaking to probably the Gentiles and started talking to the Jewish people within the church. And so certainly what we would have seen from the, the Jewish audience in the first chapter is they would have been applauding Paul as this great Jewish man. Like, yes, Paul, you let them know how horrible and how awful they are. They're doing bad things. They are wrong. And so they're like excited. They're rallying behind them. I don't know this for fact. It doesn't tell us that. I'm just imagining this is how it would be as they start reading. They're like reading it to the whole church and all the Jews are like, yes, that's exactly right. And then he begins to walk through the next part and he was like, you therefore have no excuse. Like, what do you mean we have no, what are you talking, you're talking to them still? No, 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 no. You have no excuse because you who pass judgment, you're doing the same things. Like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes, big guy. Uh, You don't know that. So this is where we kind of find ourselves in this opening remarks of the second chapter is that the the Jews uh, were condemning the Gentiles for the very things they were practicing in secrecy. And so Paul's calling them out and he's going, no, 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 no. That does, just because nobody sees you doing it doesn't make you better. In fact, it makes you worse. Because you're judging people for the exact same things you do. Here's what we know about God's judgment. God's judgment's based on facts. We're going to talk about God's judgment today some. I mean, his judgment is based on facts. It's, it, it, it's that... It's facts that correspond with reality. So there's no, there's no, uh, like you know, pulling this facade over, over, over the, you know, in front of God. He, there's no slick presentation that you're going to be able to hide behind. And the, the judgment of God is based purely on untainted truth. The Jews felt confident in their ability to hide the sin they were practicing while judging others. And Paul's going, it's not how this works. That's not how we operate. That's not how this goes down. You can't judge people for things you do in secrecy. It's true that God's God's compassion provided a lamb to take the place for the punishment of our sin. If we truly put our whole faith in the lamb of God, that is now our truth. If we do not, and in the end did not, then sin is our truth. Judgment Day will be based only on truth. If you want Jesus to be your truth, then you have to surrender to him. And we'll get more into all of that. But I just, I want to make sure as we discuss the fact today, here's what we're going to talk about, that no one is righteous, that we're all sinners. And as we talk about that, I want to make sure you understand that in that, there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is salvation. I don't want that to get lost in today as we walk through Paul's words, because Paul doesn't get there until next week. Uh, And so just make sure it's understood today. So what does all this mean? It means this. It means you cannot fool God. You might be able to fool the people around you. You You might be fooling people in this room right now. You might have people thinking that you are righteous and holy, and that God is smiling upon you and going, well done, good and faithful servant, come on home now, we'll just walk home together like Enoch in the cool of the day, and then he was no more, right? You may be fooling us, but the reality is you're not going to fool God, and that's what Paul is, is saying here to the, to the Jews. He's like, you, you, you are not free of condemnation here. You are judging them for the very same thing you're doing. Verse 4, he says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So let's talk real quick. Verse 4. 
The word kindness in verse four, it, it translates to the word goodness or the word, or word kindness or the word benevolence. And he says, do you not realize that the kindness of God, the very goodness of God, the very thing that, that the blessings that he gives you, do you not realize that was all intended to lead you to repentance? All of that's intended to lead you to repentance. So think about the, the Jewish world. Uh, the Jews uh, live in, in a sense in the beginning of all of this in this special treatment from God, right? Uh, the blessing they received from him were, were, were this huge responsibility to obey him to glorify. In his goodness, God gave Israel material and spiritual riches, a wonderful land, a righteous law, a temple, and a priesthood, God's providential care. And the list goes on of the blessings and the goodness of God that was given to the people of Israel. And what did they do? They rejected God. They turned from God. Did it bring them to repentance? No, they didn't repent. In fact, they threw it back at him. See, their, their hope was that their, their momentary uh, keeping of the Sabbath or remembering of special events would be enough. But the reality is they rejected the goodness of God. And it's not the judgment of God that leads men to repentance but the goodness of God. Think about in your own life for a moment. Because this all has to be applicable. Think about your own life for a moment. Have there been times in your life where you know for a fact that you were pushing against the will of the Lord, you were pushing against God, or you were running from God completely, and yet along the way you can think of moments where you go, okay, maybe I should have died in that moment, or maybe this should have been taken from it, yet I shouldn't have had this happen. And on the flip side of that, God is going, see, I'm still loving and blessed. I'm still doing these things in order to get your attention and hope that you will turn to me. Instead of saying, I'm pushing back, I'm pushing back, I'm pushing back, God's saying, no, stop. Look at all of the good I'm continuing to do for you because I love you. And out of the kindness and the goodness of my being and all that I am, I am continuing to show you this so that you will turn to me and repent. Because he's standing there as a loving father to say, come home. Come home. He says, yet the Israel people, the Jewish people, rejected God. All the good that he had done for them. The incredible miracles and the victories and battles after battle. All you think you read the Old Testament and you go, How in the world did God just not just like smite them and flick them off the face of the earth and say, You know, we're going to pick somebody else? Oh, you Babylonians, you're not my people, right? Like, I just don't. You see it and you're thinking, like, Man, I'm glad I'm not God, or we would be down an entire nationality at this point. So I'm going, like, I've had enough of this. Of course, maybe that would be all of humanity to be perfect. Like, <laughs> We're going to try it with deer. Maybe deer will worship. I don't, like, I don't know. Like, I just at this point, like, maybe they'll be more obedient. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture for good reason. In Romans 2, verse 6, I'll jump back to it, and it says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now that's taken out of out of Psalm, uh, out of a Psalm of David, Psalm sixty-two. But he's not teaching a salvation of character or good deeds here. We have to understand that, right? We know that that salvation is by faith in Christ, and it's you know Christ alone, right? It's not our works, it's not our deeds. But here's what he's saying: He is keeping record, right? So so God is is his his judgment. Uh, he, he's judging according to deeds and he's judging according to truth. We talked about truth and he's also judging according to deeds. And so here's, we, we mentioned this earlier. I understand this, that, that when we take on Christ, the truth now is Christ, right? So understand that. But yet there is an account that we will have to, to stand before the Lord at judgment. And so the Lord is, he, Paul's writing is like, do you not realize that you'll be judged according to all that you do? Whether it's good or whether it's evil, all of it's being written down, all of it's being marked down, all of it's being, being kept record of. So he's dealing here with the, the consistent actions of a person's life, the total impact of his character and conduct. For example, let's talk about David. David, who in, in the Israel world is highly, highly revered, and as he should be, and, and was even called uh, a man after God's own heart. But if you read the life of David, what do we see on full display? Every single failure of the poor man. And, and, and we look at him and we go, oh, David, you ruined it all, man. You had a good thing and you messed it. But, but the reality is, is we see David, and at the end of all of his life, what is he called? A man after God's own heart. Do you realize that statement is made well after the fact that he had his, his mistake with Bathsheba? 
This isn't beforehand. It isn't like, oh, he was a man after God's own heart. Now he's a man after other men's women. No, that's not the statement made. No, it's, it's, he is a man. This is after all of this. Why is that? Because, because of, first of all, because of grace. Second of all, because the Lord is saying, listen, his pure motives in his heart, he was pursuing me in all these things. So you see it and it's consistent. Actually, at the end of it all, David was called a man after God's own heart. True saving faith results in obedience and godly living. When we encounter the true love of the Father, when we encounter grace and understand it fully, that what Christ has done for me, what Christ has, has, has given for me, all of a sudden there's a shift in my understanding and my desire for, for righteousness. Because again, we, we take the mindset of it's not about me, but it's for his name's sake. And I want to do all I can do to glorify the Father. I want to do all I can do to glorify the name of Jesus. So true saving faith results in godly living and obedience. The Jews occasionally celebrated a feast or even regularly honored the Sabbath day, but it didn't change the fact that the consistent daily life was one of disobedience to God. God's kindness and blessing didn't lead them to repentance. So Paul's having to confront this and say just because you believe in Jesus at this point, just because you claim Jesus doesn't mean now that there's been true transformation and change. And you're no better than the, those that are walking in the deepest and the darkest of sins because you do them secretly and then you judge others for the very same things. Paul makes a statement at the end of all this and he says that, that God does not show favoritism. Do you want to talk about a slap in the face of the Jewish people. Paul, who is a Jew, mind you, understand this, God's chosen people. They had been through, through, through the, the, the wilderness, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. God had walked with them. They are God's chosen people. And then Paul makes this statement, God does not show favoritism. That would be a slap in the face of somebody who viewed themselves as righteously and religiously elite. And that's hard for some people even growing up in the church. So you you know what? I've grown up in church. I've kept the commands. I, I read my Bible. I've gone to Sunday school. I know everything. And then the moment that something doesn't go your way, you all of a sudden feel offended by God. God does not show favoritism. That's the reality of it. You go, why didn't I get the blessing? Why didn't I get this? Why didn't I? I've done everything right. Why did, why did this relationship go bad? Why didn't I get into this school? Why did I lose this job? Why? The reality is I can't answer those questions. I just simply understand and know this, that God does not show favoritism and that he honors those who are diligently seeking and serving him and that if we're following in obedience and the Lord wants to lift that, we're going to talk more about that in a minute. We're going to talk about the heart and what all of this boils down to in the understanding of the heart. All of this first bit boils down to the simple fact that God's judgment is based solely on truth. Our actions, our deeds are recorded, written down, we're judged according to our actions against the law. And we should be compelled by the grace and the righteousness of God to live lives of righteousness. The second thing is this, uh, is the Jews and the law, starting in, in verse 12 and if you read your headings in your Bible, there's probably not the heading right there in the middle of verse 12 saying that this is where we But really, if you look at the words of Paul and what he's saying, kind of the last bit of Romans 2 starts in, in, in verse 12. And we're going to go 12 through, uh, through 24, and then we'll 25 through 29, and then we're going to jump into chapter 3. So just there's a lot to go through. It's going to be really good, and I'm excited about it. So uh, Paul's statement in, in Romans 2 verse 11, he says, that, like I said, that would shock the, the Jewish people. And then he goes through and he begins to discuss more of the matters of, of, of the law in, in, in the Jewish culture and tradition. But we're going to pick up in verse 15, and it says this. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares, meaning, meaning Paul's gospel, what he's saying, the, the good news of Jesus. So now you, if you call yourself a Jew, 
If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And I'm going to stop right there for a moment so that you understand what's going on here. So first of all, so Paul's talking about the law and the understanding that through the law, we recognize, he said, as Jews, we have the law. And so we see Moses's law, what was written, the Torah, as it's called. He said, we have this. And so we have this understanding of right and wrong because it is written out and explained for us. We know how to live. We know how to do the right things. We know how to go according to this and, and live this out if, if we were capable of doing so. And he says, now, you think you're greater because you have the law. You think you're so wonderful because you have the law. In fact, when you start seeing, he said, you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law. And we start talking about being a guide to the blind and a light for those in the dark. They are viewing the Gentiles as the blind, as those in the dark, and, and as a, you know, the structure for the foolish. And all this stuff. So this is the, 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 the perception of the Jews in, in comparison to the Gentiles. In fact, if you read in the Old Testament, they called them Gentile dogs. So they're placing themselves in this position, in this mindset of greater than, they are less than, they are not equal to us, they are beneath us, they are below us. And Paul is saying, okay, you who have the law, who is a guide to the blind and a light to the dark and a, and a teacher to the foolish, said, I'll have you know that just because they don't have the law doesn't mean that they don't have an understanding of, of a moral compass and a leading into righteousness apart from the Lord. God gave them a conscience. So that's what he's saying. He's like, just because they weren't handed the law, you have the blessing of the word of God. You have the blessing of the, of the, the law of Moses in front of you to read and to follow and to apply and to live by, and you, and you condemn them because they do not. And he said, I'll let you know that the reality is God created it so that even in their conscience, they know what's right and what's wrong. You can go all over this world. You can go into nations outside of the, the realm of being Christian nations. And I say Christian on purpose that way because whatever. Anyway, so we, we, we know that, that you can go outside of our society, outside of our culture, and you can go way back in history when things were borderline prehistoric and whatnot. You could look at all of this and say, even in those times and in those cultures, there was an understanding and a moral code of right and wrong. You see it. There's not been a, a, a culture where, where murder was just an acceptable way of life. Like, oh, I shot a guy to do. Oh, great, right? It's never deemed an acceptable, you know, right? Because there is this moral conscience and understanding that says, no, we should probably do what we can to preserve human life, right? And so when that happens, it has kind of always been in culture and society, this thing of punishment and like, no, that's wrong. Even when you read Cain and Abel and it's the first murder, all of a sudden he, he's, it's like, what did you do? Uh, he's trying to lie about it, right? Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> you idiot. You're talking to God. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. But you, you see that, right? And so there's this moral understanding that is innate in humanity that says, okay, there is right and there is wrong. And so God is saying, just because they didn't have the law, there is this conscious understanding of, of, of what is good and what is bad. And so he's saying, don't think that you are so great that they are these, these Gentile dogs because they don't have the law. So what Paul is doing in this moment is really trying to tear down the idea and the understanding of the Jewish mindset that they were somehow automatically deemed righteous because they were God's chosen people. When Paul shows here that they had rejected the Lord. And you want to talk about something that, that caused prophets to be killed that caused prophets to be, to be you know, persecuted and murdered, you tell the Israelite people that they had rejected the Lord, that they were unrighteous. So anytime you read in the Old Testament, whenever the prophets would begin to say, whoa, 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 what you're doing is sin, what you're doing is wrong, this is contrary to the word of God, that's when they'd be like, all right, let's kill that prophet. And if murder is your solution to a problem, you're probably wrong. So, uh, they didn't, so, so Paul is stepping out on a huge ledge here and just basically saying, you're wrong. You're wrong. What you're doing is, is, is immoral. What you're doing is, is sinful. What you're doing is not right. What Paul is showing there is that the work of the law was actually written in the Gentiles' hearts. 
while they had it on paper, the Gentiles had it in their hearts. And there was this difference in this connection of head knowledge and heart knowledge. Paul made it clear it was not the possession of the law that counted, but the practice of the law. So if God found the deprived Gentiles, the ones without the word guilty, how much more guilty were the privileged? The Jewish people there had a religion of outward action and not inward attitude. And it begins to become this deep-rooted heart issue that we find. Paul is basically calling the Jews out in this moment. He's saying, hey, listen, there has to be a shift and a transformation from understanding it in your head and getting it in your heart. And Paul goes on and he quotes Isaiah 52, 5, when he says, he says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What is he saying? He's saying the people in the community that they lived in, in the world that they were living in, the people that they were surrounded by, he, they saw how they operated and acted, and they saw the way they worked and interacted. They were in the market with the, with the other Romans. They were in, in, in life doing all this. They see the deceitfulness. They see all of the things that you're doing, and, and then you're blaming others or, or judging others. They see all of this, and because of that, they are rejecting the Lord. They are blaspheming the name of the Father because of the way you live and the way that you are trying to hide and manipulate and do all this. He's saying all of that, all it's doing is only building a case against the Father. You're not doing us any good. He, said, it's, he says they blaspheme the name of the Father because of you. And then in verse 25, Paul goes after the very thing that the Jews felt distinguished them from the rest of the world, and it was the mark of being a Jewish man. Paul goes after circumcision. Now, I'm going to read this real quick, and then I want to I teach on this a little bit. But circ- so it says in verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is, only, who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an out, outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one uh, inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So this is the great mark of the covenant, right? This is the the mark of the covenant between God and Abraham, or Abram in the moment, right? And then the name changed to Abraham. This is that moment where where the Lord says, hey, here's what we're going to do. There has to be, there's just so much to this, and if we could... there's a lot to teach on when it comes to circumcision and the important, like, what was it? What did it mean historically? What did it mean in the Old Testament? How does that apply to today and this and that? So we're going to do a a quick understanding so that we get the root of it and understand the heart behind the matter, right? So so Abraham is out in in the wilderness. The Lord says, this is going to be the sign of our covenant with one another. And so he says, you you circumcise. So he does this and then he goes back and and then he says, you're going to do this with all of your, all of your, uh, all of the men in your camp as well. So every, every, if it's a male in your your camp of any, they are going to do this as well. And so there's a lot of jokes that can be made there and we're not going to, and we're going to move on. And so if you want them later, we'll talk, but right now we're not going to, we're not going to do that. But so the, the Gentiles were, were to the Jews. Again, they were uncircumcised dogs. That's another thing that they were called. It's like, uh, you know, what did David, what did they say when at the, with, when they were fighting the Philistines, it's like you uncircumcised Philistines, right? Like it was an insult, right? That was how they viewed anybody who was not circumcised was beneath and below them. They didn't have the same, uh, um, merit with the Lord. And so here's what we know though, is that, that God judges according to the secrets of the heart. He's not impressed with the mere outward formalities. So a disobedient Jew turns the circumcision into uncircumcision in God's sight because God looks at the heart. So 
So why did God have Abraham circumcise himself? What was, what was the significance? Because there's so many other things that even uh, the idea of, of kind of like a bond servant and piercing the ear, it would be visible for all to see. Because circumcision is not something that you just see on, on a daily basis. It is, it's not something that is outward to the sense that, that it's, a, it's visible for the, the rest of the world to, to take notice of. But here's what I think. Um, I think it is it's symbolic and, and it's significant in a lot of ways. But the truth is that if, first of all, it had to be, Abraham had to be the father because we know this, that if the father is committed, if the man is committed, the whole family's committed. So it starts there. But, but beyond that, the Lord knew that if he could be in control of the private matters, that he would also be in control of public matters. And then circumcision represents the conquering the flesh and taking the responsibility that goes with what we give birth to. It's not circumcision that has value, but the lifestyle it speaks of. Having the symbol of the covenant has no value unless you live up to all the agreements of the covenant. And saying the name of Jesus has no real value unless you're ready to take up your cross and follow him. The new covenant is not about the symbols, but the truth they speak of. So this, this, this ceremony or the symbol, it, it, it should be lived out by obedience. And so what, what, the, what, what Paul is saying here is saying, listen, just because you have gone through this, this physical act of obedience and, and, and walking into, in, through circumcision and, and you have this and you have this claim and this mark, it means nothing unless you're willing to keep the covenant that, that you agreed to. It means absolutely not. Uh, uh, essentially, he said, the reason he uses the term uncircumcision, because uncircumcised, it's as if, as if the covenant has been broken and that it is a breach of contract. It is null and void. Like it is no longer of any worth. And he says it needs to be circumcision of the heart because it's not just about this physical. No, it's about the obedience and about walking according to the word of God and living out the covenant that you've made far more than anything you physically do to your body. It's not about just the religious ritual and practice. It's about having a heart that is circumcised and open to the Lord and obedient in all things, in all moments, in all times. Because the grace that's given to us should lead us into righteousness. The grace that's given to us should lead us into a longing for obedience. That's why Paul says, (laughs) you think you're better but, but they've got it written in their heart. You just have it on paper. And making that change and that adjustment. And that would be a strong statement for Paul to make to a bunch of Jewish men. Especially coming from a former Pharisee who knew it better than anybody. And he's going, hear what I'm saying. There's, there is value here but not if there's obedience, if there's not obedience here. So Paul's leaning heavily into the need for obedience. It all boils down to the circumcision of the heart. It's about the heart. So real quick, I'm going to do Romans 1 through 8 as fast as I possibly can to get to uh, the next portion because it's really the meat of what we've got going on. So uh, what advantage then, this is verse one of chapter three, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? He says much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And then he says, I'm using a human argument. So he's like, don't put any weight in what I just said. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. And then he says, their condemnation is just. Here's Paul's, just quick, 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 quick on this. 
the Jews were guilty before God. Uh, in Romans 3, 1 through 8, Paul summed up basically the argument and refuted those Jews who tried to debate him. He says, try to debate me on this. You're, you're wrong. We're all wrong. We're, we're, we're unrighteous. We're guilty before the Lord. And they'd raise three questions. What advantage is it to be a Jew? And, and then he says, there's every advantage, especially possessing the word of God. You have the word of God. So like, use that. Don't, don't just say you have it. Use it. And then the second he says, will Jewish unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? And, and his reply is, absolutely not. It establishes it. And then he says, if our sin com- commends his righteousness, how can he judge us? And then he replies, we do not do evil that good may come of it. God judges the world righteously. So then moving to the last bit here. Sorry, we'll pick up in verse 10-ish. So the last point today is this. No one is righteous. Just a real encouraging word to send you out on. No one is righteous. And the great part is that includes every, every person. You're not alone in that. We are all a bunch of unrighteous people together. And that encourage Don't you just feel good about that? Man. That's good. And I'll tell you why it's good in a minute. But it says this. Um, it says, picking up kind of halfway through 10, it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. I want to do this real quick before we finish any further. Pay attention to uh, how many times he uses the word all or the fact that, or no one. And so it's like a complete inclusion of all of humanity. And so, so he says, all have turned away. They have come together. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on, vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Before I go through the amount that I'm going to go through, I want you to know that every bit of what he, he pulls there uh, comes from the Old Testament. All but one bit of that is out of Psalms, in different Psalms. And my encouragement to you is in your Bibles, typically you'll be able to go through and see uh, there'll be like a little letter next to the different portions. And you can look down and then at the bottom of your Bible and it'll tell you where Paul is quoting from. I would recommend and encourage you to go back and read those psalms in their entirety as you study this. Uh, Just to jump back, it brings so much more clarity, and we don't have time to go through all of that today because that's a whole lot of different psalms pushed together into this portion in Romans. So you need to know that. Uh, So I encourage you, go back, look through the psalms that 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 are being quoted, and just see the fullness of what Paul is quoting and what he's pulling out. Because the Jewish people would be aware of that because they were very well educated in their understanding of the word. So you would see that. So let's, let's do this then. Um, his first quote is out of Psalm 14, uh, 1 through 3. And he doesn't quote the very first part of Psalm uh, 14, 1. But it says this. It begins with, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the word there is is actually in italics, which means that it was added later by the translator so that it would be more clearly understood to read as a sentence, there is no God. But really what the statement is, is that the fool has said in his heart, no God. Which almost parallels uh, directly with what we read in Romans chapter one, that basically they've said, no God, we want to do our thing our own way. So he's saying, listen, there is no one righteous One thing we know is this, that no sinner seeks after God, therefore God must seek the sinner. Man has gone astray and has become unprofitable both to himself and to God. So God pursues the sinner with his goodness. It does start becoming a little more encouraging than just the fact that we're all unrighteous. And as you go through Romans 13 through 18, you basically see an x-ray study of the lost sinner. And we won't go through all of it, but, but he, he, his quotes, they come from Psalms 5.9, from Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10.7, uh, Isaiah 59.7 and 8, that's the one that's not Psalm, and then Psalm 36.1 as he finishes through there. In 13 and 14, they emphasize human speech, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the connection between the words and character is seen in Matthew uh, chapter 12, 34. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Paul is making this correlation and this understanding that it is these 
out of the mouths of the sinner, they reject the Lord. And then we'll jump down real quick to Romans 3, 18. Psalms 36, 1 is where he cites and says, the, sinner, the sinner's arrogant pride is, is prescribed. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a scary place to be. And you need to read that whole psalm, so please, please read all of, of Psalm 36 um, to get it. But it's, it's this pride that is the reason for their statement in verse 17 in, in Romans 3 when it says, in the way of peace they do not know. It's because of the pride that they live in. There's no fear of God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So when they're lost and wandering, it's rooted in their lack of fear of the Lord and the pride in which they walk in. So what do we get from all of that? What do we gain? What understanding do we have as we move forward? The whole world is guilty. When we compare ourselves to the righteousness of God, there's no comparison. When we stand in light of the Father and we compare to the Lord and we look at us versus him and we look and we realize there is no comparison. Righteousness is, is non-existent in humanity. Righteousness doesn't exist within us. Verse 20, it says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The word therefore could carry the meaning of the word because. So it could be because no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. I'll invite the worship team. Here's, as I wrap this up, Here's what I know. Humanity is broken. It's flawed. Every single one of us. Next week, we get to go through one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the reality is, it says, yes, that, that if there was somebody who could live fully according to the law, then, oh, they would, be, it would be, they would be righteous. But the reality, nobody can live out the law fully and completely. It is impossible. We are not, in our imperfect form as, as humans, we cannot fully live out the law on our own. It's impossible. I mean, we would not be able to do it because we are flawed. We will stumble and fall. In fact, Jesus then goes and he comes back and he says, I didn't come to uh, do away with the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law, right? And when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus says, in so many of these sins, they can be committed in the heart even without even physically taking place. So in order to fully live out the law in, in, in sinless perfection, you have to have complete control of your thoughts, complete control of your actions, complete control of your words. You cannot, essentially, you have to live in a complete world of isolation with nothing but purest in the blankest of thoughts. So what does the law do for us? It reveals our sinfulness. It reveals to us our unrighteousness. When we begin to compare to the law and you're going, where is, what is the law? What is this? First, go read the first five books of the Old Testament. There's the Torah, that's the law. And try to figure out how to keep up with every single command and then all of the other add-ons and the different, and you go, some of this, you go, yeah, I've got that down. I've never killed anybody. It's really great. Uh, I've never, you, know, you can go this and that and you go, but I have lied. I have coveted. You start going down the list. All of a sudden, the realization of your unrighteousness becomes clear. I've seen it in myself. It's pretty disappointing. You start thinking, man, I'm, I'm doing, I'm so good, I'm doing so good. And then you compare yourself to the law and you go, oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. So if you're breaking one, you're breaking the law. You are a law breaker. 
That's the purpose of the law. That was why it was that was why God in his incredible plan started it out that way. He said, because there had to be this baseline of understanding of just how depraved humanity is. We have to see it for ourselves. We have to know. So he gives us this. And now at this point, we can all read it. And yes, we all still have our, our, our conscience that, that tells us right and wrong and this and that, but, but we have it in front of us that says, okay, we are sinners. And here's what's so great. As we continue through Romans, we get to hear about grace. Ah, oh, grace. And the love of the Father. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the coolest thing, and one of my favorite statements as studying through and getting ready for this today is that your reality may be just a list long of sin, just a crazy long list of sin. You go, you don't know what I've done, I've done this and this and this. But when you receive Christ, your truth changes. And all of a sudden, now you're standing before the Lord on the day of judgment, and he's going to go through all of this stuff, and you're going to start going, oh, no. Oh, no. And he goes, but Jesus. But Jesus. You have a new truth. There's a new truth that you live by. There's a new truth that you, you, you walked into this. All of a sudden, there's this shift. And there's this change. And all of this before, all of that is just gone. And you walk in grace. And you're now clothed in his righteousness. And these next 10 weeks are going to be amazing. I just... With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to wrap up today. I, I believe strongly in the grace of Jesus and the love of the Father and that his blood, the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Though they were like scarlet, they will be white as snow. And the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus that washes us takes away the sin of the world. There's not been a single person in humanity who's ever been able to escape the judgment of the Lord. In fact, we even see it in the life of Jesus that, that when he took on the sin of the world, that even the Father in that moment, it is as if he turns his back on him and Jesus says, my God, my, why have you forsaken me? Because see, sin and God don't mix. It causes separation. It causes this wall. And, and as we talked about today, every one of us are unrighteous. But when we receive Christ, we take on his righteousness. And all is forgiven. And the grace covers. His grace is sufficient. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.